Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. I'm Simon Osimo and you're listening to the Herbicane Podcast where I share stories that will educate, inform and inspire you to live a life of significance. Now today I'm talking with Ashley Kesner, who is an addiction recovery coach, mental health blogger, founder of Ghost in My Bedroom and has personally battled depression since the age of 12 leading to several suicide attempts. Now many recovery programs have an element of faith to them but Ashley doesn't believe in God but she does believe in the big man who interestingly intervened in her life following a suicide attempt. Now Ashley's going to share that experience and describes who or what the big man is to her that helps her on a path to recovering. But before we get into today's content, if you get value from this conversation, please don't forget to subscribe. And if you're someone who likes to watch the videos, please head on over to my YouTube channel, which is simply at Simon Osimo. We have an active Twitter community on the same handle, at Simon Osimo. Now please, will you join me as we dive into today's conversation with Ashley Kesner on the subject of mental health and addiction recovery. So Ashley Kesner, welcome to the Herbicane podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Simon. I really appreciate it. Well, Ashley, I know that you are a bubbly and fun girl, but we're going to be talking about a, a sort of a lot of deep subjects. So I'm really grateful for your time, uh, really appreciative for all the work that you're doing around chemical dependency and mental illness. So, you know, it's, it's an honor for me and a privilege to get to have a conversation with someone like you who's just so open and there's so much learning for, for other people. Sure, absolutely. And so let's tell my listeners a little bit about who you are. So you are an addiction and recovery coach. You're a mental health blogger and advocate. You're the founder of Free Your Ghost, where you also blog daily for a lot of your social media. And you're a national speaker with the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Uh, And you personally have spent the last 20 years battling mental illness, addiction and depression. And I love your tagline where you say you're badass or <laughs> badass it's really yeah, badass. Yes. yeah I don't hold back I mean that really is a part of my journey when I started blogging about my recovery uh it was really important for me to keep everything in my voice and so it is very raw and unfiltered and my kind of end tagline for everything that I do has been keep kicking ass so yeah and like I said, it's a good catchphrase but for an Englishman to say ass is like bad ass so, yeah <laughs> I think it sounds cool so well, okay yeah you, you can say that, you can say but so like I said I know it's going to be light-hearted during this conversation but it's also going to be very deep and yeah. you know mental illness is something which in society, I spoke to some friends over the weekend, but it's something that we tend to push away, that either we don't want to admit that it's there, or some people don't know how to actually hold a conversation about it. So my hope and prayer for this conversation is that you'll be be able to enlighten people that perhaps struggle with some type of mental illness, or there could be a parent or someone close to someone who's battling mental illness and they'll they'll listen to your words of wisdom and sort of be inspired by it so um, there's there's a lot for you to live up to here Ashley. (laughs) Hey this is what I do so I'm I'm excited I'm excited to dive in for sure. It is so I know I mentioned about Free Your Ghost which is your blog that you have uh, and you're just about to sort of start a, a podcast so if I may we'll end on those positive subjects but I want to sort of um draw out from you some 
that knowledge, understanding and wisdom surrounded when did you first realised that you had a mental illness. And I know doing some research that you said that you had what you described as a wobble when you're age 12. And it was around when you were 16 that you uh, realised you had a sort of depressive disorder. So maybe if you don't mind, tell us about that chapter in your life. Sure. So yeah, I was about 12 years old that I remember going to my parents and saying, I just, I don't feel right. I'm crying for no reason. I have no idea how to explain it. I feel down, um, not not as happy as I feel like I should be. Um, you know, they kind of chalked it up to, oh, you're just you're you're growing. You're a teen. You're developing your emotions. Um, but for me, it felt much more than that. And and it was that early. It was at 12 years old. Um, I kind of stuck with it and we just, you know, trudged through it. Some of those episodes that I had um, until it was high school that uh, it became a little worse. And actually those irrational thoughts and everything else. And, and one comment from someone while I was a cheerleader, um, one comment she had said, you know, you're getting too heavy to put up. And I was a butterfly. I'm very small, by the way. I'm only five yeah. two. Like yeah, five two five. <laughs> um, so at that point though, I was about 130 pounds, you know, lots of muscle. I was a competition cheerleader. Um, still struggling with some of those emotions, but for the most part, I was a really happy kid. Um, but that one comment threw me through a loop, which uh, developed into an eating disorder, uh, full-blown bulimia and anorexia, and and irrational thoughts. Uh, very, very severe rational thoughts. Um, my parents had then decided to take me to a psychiatrist and it was here that I was di officially diagnosed with the eating disorder and major depressive disorder or, or depression. Looking back, uh, you say from sort of 12 years old, is there anything you now, um, I believe you're in your 30s, you should never ask a woman her age, but was that <laughs> online? I'm, I'm proud of it. I'm 33. <laughs> 33. You? You're still in your prime. You're still a youngster. But I, So what does that look like at 12 then? Um, today's world, everything is on social media. You know, there's so much information out there on, on you could Google YouTube. I'm sure hundreds and thousands of videos might come up. But at 12 years old for you, in what way were you feeling different? Have you been able to contextualize the emotions, the feelings, the, the words that you might have been saying that were saying to you that all isn't all isn't well in my mind. Sure. I mean, I'll try my best. I, I want you to remember that you are talking to a recovering alcoholic. So I did drink yes. away a lot of those brain cells. Um, and, and I sometimes joke about things and you'll kind of get that vibe. And, and the more you look at my story, that's, that's my approach to it. I, I always say I am cynical, not clinical, but I did drink some of those brain cells away. But if I were to describe it, um, and how I remember it that young, very similar to how I felt as an adult, um, just periods of, of almost emptiness, periods of doubt. Um, I, you know, after I went to my parents and kind of told them, I don't know why I feel this way. I'm crying, but I don't have a reason. You know, that frustration is is hard to manage alone because you can't accept it. You can't accept that there's no trigger. There's no reason to cause some of these things. And that's a giant struggle with depression and, and what causes that shame and guilt. Um, and then on top of it, then I went to my parents and, you know, they were like, well, 
it's okay. You're just growing. They kind of, you know, they didn't know themselves how to handle it. There wasn't that mental health awareness back then. So they kind of just shoved it under the rug and left me kind of to feel there's something wrong with me, you know? Well, and that's, that's really fascinating stuff to, to hear, even so young, to, to work out, you know, why do I feel different than perhaps other people should do or just recognizing that, um, uh, you know, all isn't right? Because I've got to admit, for me in my life, I often try and think, well, what must it be like? And it's really hard for me con- to, to contextualize how mm-hmm. someone else is, is feeling. So, um, yes, it's interesting. I know one of the things that I read about you is that your mum, during your sort of anorexia and bulimic stages, your mum found a bag of sick sort of hidden within your room when she was cleaning one day. I mean, um, yes. how was it for your parents during during this stage? My parents, you know, like I said, mental health awareness was just kind of not, it's definitely not where it is today. Um, they didn't know how to handle it. They were scared. They were terrified. I mean, when you go into your daughter's room and you find a bag of vomit, uh, how, how do you think, you know, you can't really put yourself in, in those shoes. Um, they confronted me and I remember, I can still remember specifically that day that I came home and my mom said, I found, I found this, Ashley, are you okay? And unknown to me now at the time, unknown then, my brother had, I have a younger brother, Jay, who had gone to my parents and have said, Ashley's struggling, you need to get her help. And, and they didn't know how, so they didn't. Um, but, but that was a real challenge. And I can't imagine how they would feel in that moment. But it's something that, you know, we've talked about often now how I would handle it, especially as a mother, because I am one. And, you know, just to try to help them understand what I was going through, too. Um, that's really what it comes down to is trying to empathize with somebody else and especially your kids. And, and I know you want to talk about that, so I'll save it, but, um, but, but really empathy is, is huge. And I know it's hard to understand some of those things when our kids are going through them, but, um, there is a way to do it. And, and I, I advocate it and I help parents all the time with them. Yeah. It must be difficult for parents to be in that position. And what about you at that young age, uh, was there anyone that you felt you could share that with family, friends, or was it just something even at a young age you knew to sort of keep this um, internal? So there were a few of my friends that knew I was doing it and it's because they were doing it too. Um, I'm not sure, you know, their reasons. I can't speak for them. I I know my reasons and and it was a coping tool looking back but i also you know an eating disorder is a whole different realm than mental of mental illness um it's it's something that i still struggle with i always say it's kind of you know like a shitty roommate you just have to get used to living with um but you know there are certain habits and and everything else but there there were people that knew um because they were doing it themselves and i guess that's why i didn't feel alone and didn't feel like i was really doing anything too harmful unfortunately and so we go from 
you know, sort of 16 years old and then we sort of fast forward to when you went to college. But those in between years, would you just say that it was a battle with an eating disorder or sort of, sort of some other addictions and mental illness sort of played in there? What would you say between maybe 16 and sort of 18, 19 when you went to college? Depression was and is, you know, the root of everything that I've had to deal with. And I firmly believe that looking back now, I mean, an eating disorder is kind of a different realm. And there are certain things that I still have to watch and be careful of. But I'm more self-aware of those things treating my depression. But I really feel that my depression, anxiety issues were were always kind of the stem and the root of everything. Uh, once I started to treat those then is when uh, my life got a hell of a lot better. <laughs> yeah, sure. And there was there was times when you went to college. I know that you said that, um, I think I read one of your blogs somewhere, that you didn't have boundaries of a home or a small town. It Obviously, you know, any teenager going away for college, it gives you more freedom to do those things where there's no yeah. controls or, or no one's saying, no, you shouldn't be doing this. But interestingly, you'd weaned yourself off medication at that point was that because you felt that you were getting sort of well or were you weaning yourself off just because you didn't want to take the uh, the medication anymore what, what have you sort of rationalized about that looking back at it afterwards sure absolutely looking back uh i felt like i had reached a stable place but now looking back i also hadn't fully accepted my diagnosis i didn't fully accept and and could take that I would have to be on medication for the rest of my life just to be happy. Uh, I didn't want to have to take a pill just to be happy. I, I thought, you know, I let my pride and my ego get the best of me and, and decided to wean myself off of it. And then, you know, that's kind of when alcohol became more of an influence and more prominent in my life to cope with some of the things I was feeling. Yeah. And I don't think actually, um, asked you this or, or read about what's your degree in actually what are you actually studying for <laughs> oh that's a whole other story yeah. so, um we've got all day we've got time let's go yeah so actually when i went into college i was really interested in becoming a physician's assistant um that had kind of transitioned i really really loved chemistry so i went in as a, as a chemistry major I did a couple of years and I think I've got burned out too with that, which, you know, drinking cure all. Um, but I ended up switching, you know, going in and out and withdrawing so many times during the course of my career because of alcohol. Um, I ended up leaving at one point and I found myself in kind of the financial sector and was when I got into banking and really enjoyed that. Um, because I had so many chemistry credits though, uh, I decided to keep those. So my my degree is in integrative studies, which is a combination of sociology and chemistry credits. So I know it's incredibly well-rounded. And then I also took a minor in business administration in the event that I would ever want to go back and pursue my MBA. Wow. So um, <laughs> I know it's heavy. No, it's, 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 it's some good stuff in there. Good stuff. Well, were you able to, I don't know if there is like a, a sort of a, a, a true term, but were you like a functioning um, sort of alcoholic or a functioning drinker? Could you go to classes, you know, get the grades and maintain your sort of separate lifestyle on the side? What did that look like for you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I would go out, you know, it, it's, Looking back, it was a lot different too when I was younger. The uh, 
uh, healing time after drinking was much shorter than it, you know, is when you're older. And I think a lot of people can agree with that. But I would drink and then go to class the next day. Um, you know, eventually, though, my drinking was so severe that I was skipping class and I wasn't going. And then I would get to the point where I just didn't care and would withdraw. And I ended up doing that probably six or seven times. One of the topics I'd like to touch on just about this sort of crossover between, you know, maybe being a teenager and then going into um, higher education is, is there an age, and I generally don't know the answer to this, is there an age where you sort of, do you age out of some of the eating disorder um, and you moved into sort of drinking? Was it was there a crossover or, or did the sort of bulimia stop and then drinking um, took up? And the reason why I say that is generally those that have an addiction, you know, if they cure it in one area of their life, it can spill over sort of somewhere else. So I wasn't too sure if your bulimia carried on into college or whether it's just got replaced with alcohol. An eating disorder is, I consider it a, an entirely separate thing. I have, I have struggled off and on with that since the age of 16. Um, it has never fully gone away. I still have, you know, to some degree, um, a little bit self-conscious about myself. I'm much happier and comfortable now, but there are certain things that I just have to be aware of. But um, it's always kind of been in the back of my mind. And I really, you know, I know there, I hate to say this, but I just think it's more prominent in females to feel that way because of society pressures to be a certain way. Um, I think drinking helped cope with the eating disorder. So, you know, I may not have been um, actively purging all the time, but those thoughts of being self-conscious and insecurity were still there. So I was drinking and getting that faux sense of confidence about myself and I loved it. And so that's why I kept, I, I kept drinking because it, it broke me out of my shell. It, it got me out of that insecurity. Um, when I, when I committed to sobriety and everything else and treated the depression, I had to actively work on getting rid of some of these little habits that I've, that I've had. And my blog does touch on that. Um, some things that I didn't like about myself and I wanted to work on, which was pinching. I used to pinch myself in all areas of my body constantly. And, um, I've got, I think one day I, I started counting it. <laughs> one day I started, I, I, one day over 300 times I pinched myself. Um, now I don't at all. And I really firmly believe that it just all comes down to mindset and treating what I had to treat from the beginning. And that was my depression. Yeah, it seems even from a young age, you've had a lot of self-awareness. Um, like I said, to recognize this from 12 and moving into your sort of teenage years. And I think around this time was when you'd actually told a friend for the first time that you didn't want to live. I mean, can you can you remember that, that stage? What was the build up to, to that? Yeah, so I was drinking heavily and I believe that was about uh I think I was about 21 or 22 I was drinking heavily and I told him that I just couldn't do it anymore I had reached such a, a terrible dark place um I think you know a, a relationship just ended or something like that I had no self-worth no self-love to pick myself back up so to cope with all of that, I was drinking and I felt alone. I felt like I didn't have anybody to talk to. Um, I, I remember I had the pills sitting right in front of me and I, I told my friend, I said, I don't, I don't want to do this. And um, he rushed over and 
called my mom and I was living about an hour away. She came in and took me into the doctor. And that's when I went in for my first inpatient experience. Yeah. And I mean, are you still in touch with your, that friend now, that person that was there for, you, for that first moment? <laughs> I just talked to him this morning. Yes. <laughs> 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 and, and, and the reason why I ask that is generally you find there's just such a strong connection, such a strong bond um, through that. And, and it's, um, you know, at the time you felt that you were alone and that there was there was no one there for you. And obviously there was this friend that was there. And to, mm-hmm. I don't know how many years ago this was, but, you know, years later, that person's still there for you. And at this time is, you know, do you, when you look back, was there anything that you could have done differently around that time, particularly for yourself? I think I could have probably been more open and honest with my parents about what was going on, but a large part of my story and, and I just want to say that my parents are wonderful. They have, they have provided me with such a great life. I don't blame them or fault them for anything of, 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 you know, how they reacted to things or how they, how they handled situations. I think that honestly, it was just, they didn't know what to do, but you know, from getting so much invalidation, um, you know, from from going to them and trying to tell them, this is how I feel and getting back this, you're just being too emotional. Um, there's a lot, just try to think about all the other people that have it worse. Uh, you, you know, you'll get over it. You'll look back and think this is nothing one day. Um, it It prevented me from ever wanting to go and say how I felt. And I think that's a major issue in society still. And it's something that I advocate against all the time is, you know, it's called toxic positivity, that that overgeneralization that you have to always be positive all the time. I always I try not to jump down people's throat when they come at me and say, stay positive, Ashley. Um, But but it is harmful and it's counterproductive to the entire thing, because you know, we don't have to be happy all the time and we need to have a safe place that we can go and talk to others and let them know how we're actually really feeling and we need to be heard. Yeah, I personally feel, um, you know, I mean, I was a police officer for 14 years in England. I've seen yeah. a lot of things that no person should really have to see. And, mm-hmm. and as police officers, no matter where you are in the world, you convince yourself this is normal and it, it's not normal. Um, and I think it's okay to have those moments, but it's very difficult to really open up um, and sort yeah. of share those emotions and feelings. There is that fear of judgment and, well, can you not, are you not tough enough? Can you not deal with this? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so so it's it's fascinating to hear you hear you say that, and I guess if we sort of move on to the period around, um, whatever was the period that you were sort of cutting yourself, which I guess is that sort of just escalation of different behaviours, it's just manifested its way out in a different different form. Uh, is there any sort of key learning that you learned about yourself, Ashley, when you were when you were cutting yourself? I I don't know if I necessarily learned anything productive. (laughs) Um, I learned, I learned that I, when I'm in my dark moments, I have a lot of courage and it's not, it's not the good courage. (laughs) Um, and I think that, you know, I've always just felt that I feel things on a different emotional level. I think my my EQ is really kind of off the charts, <laughs> uh, the self-awareness, the emotional sense. Um, 
But I think because I have always felt that I feel things more deeply and am a very emotional person that, you know, when I wasn't getting relief from the drinking, when I wasn't getting relief from the purging, um, I knew that I didn't want to kill myself. Uh, when my when my self-harming was really bad, I was I was still raising my daughter. Um, she's the light of my life and she always was. You know, me doing these things, you know, a lot of people go, I can't believe she was doing that with her, you know, as a mom. But you have to understand that it's it's not selfish. The I hated myself. I hated myself. Um, but I knew that I had to stay here for her. And so I didn't want to die, but my release was, was to cut myself. Um, and then eventually, you know, that didn't last long and it turned into, uh, an attempt to take my life. Yeah. And actually, I mean, that's a great segue into it. Do you mind sharing those sort of the events around in, um, how you tried to take your life. And I know you ended in, into an outpatient facility, which really where your transformation started. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, please um, share as deeply as you want to on that subject. Sure. So, um, I had gotten to a really severe place. I think it was probably, I believe it was 14 years, you know, of, of coping with drinking and it had become really overwhelming and I was ashamed of my habits. I hid a lot of it, but there were people that knew when I was drinking, especially my daughter's father. Um, I was miserable. And when someone's miserable, they try to make everybody else miserable. And I don't really think we, we think about that. You know, we project how we feel onto other people all the time, all the time. So if you're not happy with yourself, um, you're not going to be happy with others. And I never was with him. And when I was drinking, I would nitpick. <laughs> um, and, you know, when it got really bad was when he was deployed overseas in Poland. Um, he, he's an amazing person. He's, you know, staff sergeant in the National Guard, serves our country. Here he is over there, you know, and here I am kind of only thinking about myself. And I recognize now how terrible and excruciating that must have been for him, you know, not only to be away from his daughter, but to, you know, have to kind of put up with my crap. <laughs> so, you know, there was a lot that we had to work through there, too. But it was when he was deployed uh, that I say I was working for full time jobs. I was a, a full time single mom. I was working full time until I ended up quitting my job because I feel like, you know, it was a lot. Um, I was in school again, full-time, trying for the umpteenth time to uh, finish my degree. And I was a full-blown alcoholic. Um, my life was, I was a robot. I was going through the motions. I, I hated everything about myself. I couldn't stand to look in the mirror. And, um, you know, it got to the point where and it's really hard to, and I'm sorry, I still get emotional about it. It's okay. Um, I can't put into words what it feels like to feel that empty, that, that worthless. My brain had just told me, you need to save everyone from yourself and end this. Um, 
I didn't want anyone else to be hurt by my destruction. And, and it was almost a no brainer. I had um, dropped my daughter off at my parents' house. I went home and um, I remember I drank myself to death so I could numb and I tried to overdose. Um, I, I don't remember reaching out to the few people that I did, but apparently something in my brain said to do it. And um, one of them called uh, one of them called crisis and they came to my house and were able to get in and I was taken to the ER. Um, and I woke up and I woke up really kind of out of it. And actually I, I remember waking up being really discouraged with my mom next to me. And I said, just, just have them let me die, please. Um, but of course they didn't. And, and I was able to get testing done and everything else. And I was, I ended up going into inpatient then uh, for the second hospitalization. And I was, I was 31 years old. This, you know, this really isn't that long ago, which is, which is another kind of unique part to the story. But um, I went into inpatient and just feeling so ashamed, so guilty, so so worthless. I couldn't believe that I had end up, ended up in the same place again. Um, but I knew that I knew that it was time. It was time to it was time to free whatever what was haunting me, and that was my drinking and and a lot of different stuff. Um, I did inpatient, and I and I found the big book. You know, I wasn't. I wasn't doing much in there. There's not much to do other than <laughs> <laughs> a lot of reading. Uh, a lot uh, of reading. Well, um, I guess you had two options. It was going to be prison or in yeah, hospital, wasn't it? So right. I think you chose for a better one, to be fair, Ashley. Yeah. So. so um, you know, they, you know, I hadn't I hadn't done anything that, you know, was gonna end me up in jail. So um, but they had given me the choice. They said, We're gonna force you to go in inpatient, you could sign yourself in. And I said, I'll, I'll gladly go in. I need it. Um that really was a life-changing point for me. Um, I had a lot of growth within one week, which is, which is intense. And it was because I found the big book and I started reading it. And there's a section in the middle that um, is for people that are unsure about their drinking habits. They don't want to call themselves an alcoholic, uh, all of that stuff. And, and I actually don't prefer labels. I don't use them, but for the context of this, I'm going to talk about it, but there's a portion in the middle and it goes into uh, talking about a single mom. There's a story about a single mom. And I just remember breaking down and going, aha, this is it. This is, this me. I have a problem. And yeah. yeah. I was going to say, it was fascinating because when we spoke, I think you were saying, you know, you're 31, I think you said at this point. Mm -hmm. Uh, that was the first time you've actually really said to yourself, I do have a problem. And sort of, were you perhaps, I don't know, kidding yourself in, in denial? Why was it at sort of 31 there? Because actually this is, this is real. What, what allowed you to have that level of openness and honesty with yourself? Because people think Simon's great. No, <laughs> no one really knows me because we're very good at hiding ourselves within. But for you to actually yeah. say, admit to yourself, maybe I'm not so 
good right now. Um, how, how did you get there? I hit rock bottom. Um, sometimes, unfortunately, that's what has to happen as a wake-up call. Uh, you know, this was my second inpatient hospitalization. I couldn't believe that I had ended up there. I knew my drinking was out of control. So to some degree, I did know that I had a problem with it. I just didn't want to admit it because I thought that it would make me not normal. I don't know. I was worried about what everybody else would think. Um, the idea of, you know, having to go to AA and all of this stuff just was terrifying. It's scary. It's really, really scary. Um, but my parents knew and I started telling my friends and, um, you know, it, it did start to become real and, and, and I was able to accept it, I think to a certain degree, but really not fully until after I had hiccuped, I call it, um, I had had a relapse in, in April and that was, that was my nail in the coffin. Yeah. And, you know, I'm just staying on that sort of being in hospital for a, for a second and mm-hmm. you sort of hitting rock bottom with those, there's a sort of common statement that people say, you know, if you knew the real Simon, no one would like me. I mean, is that the type of, is that where you were? But, you know, if people knew the real you, they'd be, you didn't want to turn because you'd be embarrassed and feel shame. Is that, can you relate to that statement that people often say? Oh, absolutely. I don't know who the hell I was. I, I don't even know. Um, I had, my drinking had just completely depleted any of my self-worth. I, in order to be anything, I felt like I had to be drunk uh, to talk to anyone, to have a conversation. I was terrified. I was insecure. I was, I was a shell, um, and I was I was scared to admit it to anyone. Um, so that's why what I do right now is really important to me to help people not get to that point and help them understand that they're not alone at all. Um, You know, I think that it's a complete blessing looking back that my brain is rewired a little bit different. Um, And there's a lot of important factors into it too. You know, my, on my dad's side of the family, alcoholism runs, runs in that side. Um, Those are things that I don't think were discussed often enough growing up uh, about how, substance use could come into play in my life to, to cope with things. Um, but again, I don't, I don't fault any of that because I feel like my path, I was supposed to take it and live it for a very specific reason. And, um, right now I just, I'm grateful. I'm very grateful that I experienced it and had to go through the worst so that I could find my best. Yeah. And I think with all the things that you've just described and, you get emo- getting emotional telling your journey. I was getting emotional. It's just tears coming in my eyes. Like, I don't know when I'm going, how can I discreetly just wipe my eyes? And, uh, it doesn't look like I'm crying here. But, you know, I mean, I follow all your social media. Um, I think the last one was Twitter that me and you connected the other down there. You know, but you're always posting so much in powerful um, stuff, which is just helping 
you know, thousands of people, not only across the country, across the world. Um, you know, so you've got to take a lot of comfort with how your journey is helping and shaping others. So I'm really grateful for you being vulnerable and sharing that. And it's actually a good segue, Ashley, into your transformation now as to, as to where you are now. We know you're, you're an advocate, you know, you um, present on mental illness, you've got your, your blog about your personal journey, you're gaining, you know, huge following on all the, the platforms that you're on. Um, you describe him, and I'm, I'm a man of faith, but you describe it as the big guy. <laughs> and, and when we were talking about this, I was like, we, we're going to get into this because it's important. You know, I think whatever people believe, I think it's good to have some type of belief. You know, you don't have to believe in uh, in Christ. You don't have to, to believe in Buddhism, anything. It's just good to believe in something, but there is a higher power controlling us. So I want to dive in now about, tell us a story that built up to it and then sort of tied into the big man that you got connected to. <laughs> yeah, me, me and the big man are tight. We're best friends yeah. now. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely believe in, and you can see this on basically any, any of my stuff that spirituality is a personal choice. I think it's a progressive journey. Uh, I was not, you know, I didn't have any sort of connectedness when I first started this. Um, but during I've had two very specific spiritual awakenings that brought me to my knees in tears and have, have helped me develop into the person that I am now. And it's just really unique that, you know, it did happen and is happening so quickly. Um, but the, where I felt it the most was, you know, when I came out of inpatient and I was, I was dedicated to getting sober I had tried to go to AA, but there was just something that I did not like about AA. Um, I didn't like saying an affirmation of my biggest flaw. I didn't like going in there and saying, hi, I'm Ashley, I'm an alcoholic. Um, a lot of different factors and that just based on where I'm from, there was a generational gap there. I was a 30 year old sitting in a room with 60 years old and, and older. I think one time that someone said they were 91 or something. I mean, oh, wow. how do you relate to someone like that? Um, but there were, there were times where I felt belittled. I would, I remember, you know, all of that. But so when I went into AA and I was doing all this unsuccessfully on my own, I would get sober. I'd be sober for a couple of weeks and then I'd, I'd go back. And because I kept failing here, insert shame and guilt again. And this is where I found myself in the worst depressive episode of my lifetime. Um, and my daughter's father had rightfully taken her at that point because I could not take care of myself. Um, but I was in bed for weeks and I wasn't eating or bathing. And I was laying there just with no will to live. Um. And I kind of, I knew I had two choices. It was start over or try again and take my life. And something told me that, and I still, I can't put it into words because it is a different feeling. And I don't think that it should be described or be able to be articulated, but something higher than me said, you got to get out of this bed and you got to get it out. Um, and that's when I wrote the breakup letter, which was my letter to alcohol, breaking up with it, uh, kind of just like a toxic relationship. So that's what it is. <laughs> um, I wrote the breakup letter and I, I 
posted it to my Facebook wall for all of my friends and family to read. Uh, I did this to keep myself accountable this one last time to my sobriety. And I can't tell you how absolutely stressful that was and anxiety ridden, but you know, I didn't get criticism. I didn't get anything other than love and support. And it's still really, uh, it's humbling. And it's why I believe in the power of vulnerability and, and, you know, just being fully honest with yourself. Um, and as I continued to write, uh, more people continued to read and the stories started flooding in and people were able to relate to it. Um, yeah, I'm very raw and unfiltered. Again, it's explicit, uh, but that's just me. Um, but, you know, it's helped me really discover and dive into the uncomfortable. Um, I got sober and decided to get sober on the brink of a global pandemic. <laughs> um, so add in a whole other layer to this. So if, if anyone's out there listening and got sober, you know, during all of this shit show of a world, um, props to you because it was a whole different, it's a whole different ball game because you don't have the opportunity to go outside. You don't have the opportunity to go to groups. You don't have the opportunity to, to go do anything. You're, I was stuck confined to my house where I've spent, miserable nights drinking myself to death. Um, but I look at it as a silver lining. It forced me to really dive into some hard stuff. And from sharing every single detail, I can honestly say that every single detail of my life is out there for anyone to read. And um, because of that, I am able to be completely and authentically me at all times. Um, I have absolutely nothing to hide and I have zero shame in my story and zero shame of what I've gone through. And that's why I continue to live the way I do and, and speak the way I speak because it's worth it. It's badass. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting you say that because a, a quote from Socrates was coming to my mind. And I think he once said, but the, the best way to live with honor in this life is to be who we pretend to be. And I think um, as you talk in one of our, a prior episode, I can't remember the number with Lewis Conway Jr. Uh, he was convicted of voluntary manslaughter when he was released. He found he used to try and hide it and everything was about trying to hide his former life. And very similar to you, it was only when he became vulnerable and very transparent, but actually freed him from that burden. Uh, he's very similar to you. He's inspiring people uh, around the world um, through his through his story. So um, fascinating um, journey. And to go back to the big man, you know, we don't know who or what he is for you. You know, and everyone is everyone is different. But you felt this sort of um, movement, I, I guess, in a, in a sort of forward trajectory. So I'm going to ask you a challenging question. Uh, surrounding this um and, and there's there's no right or wrong answer just to say it's not it's not a test i'm just looking for, <laughs> I'm just looking for your perception of it so how how you feel because I, I know you're you'll tell people off so that's why i gave you the, the warning so uh, too yeah. hard but, you know when, when we look at it addiction very simply people often say well come on drag yourself out of it pull yourself out of it and we know that it has to come from within so so knowing that you felt some type of power that sort of helped you 
how, how do other people find that? Is that something that found you, something that you were looking for to sort of see where I'm going with it? When, when people are trying to get away from addiction um, and they're trying to find it within, it sounds like you found it from a sort of a, an outward source. So can you sort of, can you rationalize with what I'm saying or contextualize that question? So it's a deep and, and weird one, but I'd be interested to see what you'd say oh. about that. Oh yeah. Deep, deep is my thing. Let's do this. Yeah. Um, so you know, I really didn't have, I am the type of person, and I'm just going to be straight on honest right now. I do not believe in religion, but I do believe in a higher power. Um, so, you know, I'm not a church goer or anything like this, but I, I am very connected at this point. Um, I wasn't in the beginning, but in order for me to get through certain things, I knew I, w- I would pray. I didn't know what I was praying to, but I I would just pray. And uh, I knew that the big man got me out of bed that day. So I knew that, you know, there was something there more than me. Um, as I continued on, there were pockets. There were pockets of moments where I knew that what was happening in my life was something much bigger than me. Um, I, you know, and I do, and I do say it's a, a progressive journey. It requires a very, very open mind and heart at all possible times, which is something that I think people struggle with, um, in particular, but, um, my, my first kind of enlightening that I had was after my relapse and, Um, I had gone back to the blog and I told my world that I struggled again. They lifted me up and that was kind of, you know, a sign of the beauty of and power behind something more. Um, but I started the next day and I remember, I think it was probably two months in then from, from that point, waking up in the morning and even when I talk about it, it makes me cry. I remember waking up in the morning and just feeling so alive and grateful. And I remember just crying outside. I was I was going for a jog and it was like the the air felt different. The I could smell better. It was like all of my senses were extremely heightened. And I just broke into tears. And there was no explanation, no other explanation for me. Um, besides, you know, the big man telling me you're on the right track, keep going. Um, and then the second, the second one was, you know, not too, too long ago, you know, amongst all of this political stuff going on in the world. And, um, you know, I'm sitting here just going, I don't, I don't understand. I don't understand how, how people can be so focused on these, on these, you know, kind of useless topics. They're not useless, but I, I, you know, broke into kind of tears again and felt this overwhelming sensation of, you know, this is bigger than you. This is, this is so much bigger than you, what you are doing by sharing your story and showing that you can 
literally make it through the depths of hell and come out on the other side laughing and smiling. This is, this is why you had to go through everything that you did to now help others. Um, I feel like I see things from, from a higher, almost macro level. Um, it's, I, I, my anxiety is decreased almost. I, I, it's very, very hard to articulate how when you are connected to something more than yourself and you genuinely feel like you're living with it through you. Um, I don't think that, I don't think it can really be something that's described. And, and I really honestly kind of choose not to. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's quite the, the other tough question I've, I've got for you, and again, you know, I really believe your transparency and openness and to, to break down all those barriers is really, really um, helping you. Is Do you believe or have you ever considered, was the big man always there knocking at your door and you didn't let him in? Or do you think this was like a, an intervention from, from the big, <laughs> big man? I guess there's two different ways to, to look at it. Where, where, would you, where would you say you sit? I believe that he was always present in my life. Um, I have chosen to not resent him for putting me through the garbage that he did, but I now look back and know that it was for a reason. And um, that's why I'm able to appreciate where I am now. Um, I think that I was very closed down and there was something more than me, um, you know, not in that sense, but in the darker sense, trying to take its hold. And I'm just very glad that I didn't let it. That's very powerful. I mean, like I said, you know, I'm outwardly a Christian. I don't try and hide it from everyone, um, from anyone, but I don't. Um, I respect other people's views and opinions. I think the, the commonality for a lot of this is, there is something out there, whether you're like me, you believe in God, whether it's like you, but you believe in this sort of, you know, divineness, this, this big guy. I just think it's good that people believe to try and make sense of what this world is and to have faith and to have hope. So I'm really grateful that you're, you're there. And we're going to start moving on to some of your blog and some of the good stuff now, because I, I can't make <laughs> you cry three times in one episode. I've never, I've never had that before. Oh my gosh, listen, I always say, my grandma always said, us, we girls have our bladder behind our eyes. So that's my excuse. I've embraced the fact that I'm emotional. I don't even care anymore. That's that's good. That's good. (laughs) That is good. I like that. So one of the things where I feel, and I know you do a lot of uh, podcasts and you talk to a lot of people and I was trying to think, well, you know, what's a, a unique way to sort of really help others? And there's some very interesting topics which come about to the post-addiction where I feel that you can offer some insight and just remind people that this struggle is still real. Uh, and one of those is that me and you had, uh, I don't know if it was a LinkedIn or email conversation where I have to be honest, I'm a former investigator. I see you know, men um, respond to your comments because they see you as being vulnerable. You know, your your life life is out there. Uh, maybe tell us about some of the struggles that you have now, because maybe some of those struggles actually are slightly different. You've got to keep <laughs> the other crazy people away. But... <laughs> so, yeah. so tell us a bit about that, because because that's yeah. great learning. So, a lot of people I bet don't expect or, or know that you really have that type of challenge now. 
Sure, absolutely. I mean, something that I've always kind of been challenged in my life, and, and you know, I don't say this to sound uh, like a pompous asshole or anything. I know that I'm an attractive female. Um, something I've always been challenged with is having people or men especially um, reach out to me and and say inappropriate things, always commenting on my on my looks. Um, when I got vulnerable about my story, it got worse. I don't know why that's the case. When when someone is able, I think you know it really is a true testament. When someone is able to be truly vulnerable and true and be truly themselves, it attracts others because I think you know it shows others. Well, I want to be that way. I want to do that. Um, There are men that don't understand boundaries and, uh, and everything like that. And it's a, it's a serious issue. And I've talked to a lot of other females on, especially the professional platforms of how things aren't appropriate. Um, You know, the pet names and everything else. Um, I don't, I'm not okay with that. And I call them out on it. (laughs) Either that or you're just blocking the report. I mean, the buttons are there for a reason. you know, how I handle things like that is probably different than most and what they probably don't expect. I think society kind of as expects us as females to accept this behavior and just move on from it. I challenge that and say, no way. Um, you know, we are about, I, I'm all for equality and, and full, full respect, but yeah, I still get, I still get <laughs> some people that are, uh, inappropriate. Um, and, and I do sometimes you'll see that I will make posts about it. Oh yeah. I've seen you say that. That's why we can mention it. And remind them of, of how to act. I'm not sure how they think that's okay, but, um, I'm not scared to Photoshop their head on a meme and blast my world with it. So they should be aware. (laughs) As a warning, never part of the reason I wanted to cover that because one, like I said, you know, you're, you're coming out the other side of um, sort of vulnerability and there's people that are sort of maybe exploiting it is too strong a word, but there's people that maybe taking advantage of it. Um, but it also ties in with any addiction and like-minded behaviours. You've got to say go. You've got to say goodbye to former lives. I mean, there must have been, I'm thinking now for a parent listening to this or someone who could have been going through a battle, that saying goodbye, I'm never going to drink again. I'm never going to do this again. That must be a hard thing. Is there close friends that used to enable you that you would drink with that you perhaps do drugs with you've had to just say you you can't be in my life because you're no longer a positive uh, role model you know honestly because my situation was unique and because I did things the way that I did uh, and I am from a small town when I told everybody and put this post out there that said hey this is my issue my friends that were the heavy drinkers and some still are, they gave me, they were actually the ones that gave me the most support, um, which you wouldn't think that sometimes it's not the case, but they understood. And I think they understand because they just haven't fully accepted some of the things themselves, but, but they support me. And those that haven't supported me, um, you know, I just really have chosen to move forward without them because 
life is too short to deal with assholes. <laughs> um, but it is, it is a challenge. It is a challenge to kind of change your environment, how I did things and, you know, choosing to be so vulnerable. It, it changed my friends, my friend base and everything like that and who I surrounded myself with. But it also helped me gain an entirely other circle that is full of some of the most compassionate and loving people I've ever met in my life. Um, yeah. And so for that, I'm thankful. Yeah, there's a real community, isn't there, around yeah. all this stuff, even for me doing my, my podcast, you know, I mean, I really, uh, most of the people that I interview, they do become friends, you know, just not just an acquaintance, they become friends and you, yeah. you email back and forth and talk to, so that support is really there. Just one last question before we move on to about sort of ghost um, in your bedroom type stuff and tell us about the blog and the good stuff you're doing every day is, how did you have to even rebuild a relationship with your daughter or, or with family members? I imagine there must have been a lot of years of strain there if you've been in around sort of uh, addiction and mental illness. Um, what, what can you say about that time in your life, trying to rebuild relationships with family members and your daughter? Uh, you know, my daughter, my daughter's only three. So when I was going through things, um, she was very unaware. And um, that was actually, you know, it is kind of a blessing. She didn't she didn't know what was happening. Um, so there wasn't, you know, I'm still her mom and she, she probably will not remember my struggles, which is something, you know, um, that is, that is good about the situation. Now, in terms of myself, um, sometimes I still have a hard time forgiving myself for where I was when she was so little, because I can't get that time back. But I choose to focus on the now and what I'm doing moving forward. So what I can build for her, um, you know, is a legacy that, you know, not only myself that can be remembered by, but for her as well. Um, I had to really build up a lot with my daughter's father. Like I said, he's a military guy. He's strong, protective. Uh, we went through our hell together with this. Um, really, it takes time. It takes time. He needed proof. Um, I'm doing that for him. However, you know, a large part of sobriety is you need to be sober for yourself, not for other people, uh, or else you will falter. Um, I, I, I live now to impress nobody else but myself, which, which I think is the way that it should be handled. But, um, Making amends is very challenging. I've I've pretty much made all of mine. There are still people left that I haven't reached out to. Um, and there are people that I've reached out to multiple times and have tried to explain my situation and everything else and where I was and why I got to the place that I did. And they have chosen not to forgive me. That can be stressful in itself. Um, but you have to remember that if you are constantly making changes to better your life. You are constantly, you know, doing that moving forward. That lack of forgiveness shows more about them than it ever will me. And that's how it, that's how I view it. So. Yeah. Powerful, powerful stuff. And as we start to sort of wrap up our time together, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about um, your blog. So mm -hmm. 
Free free your ghost is the name of the blog. Is that correct? No. So go this. I know this is tricky because it's You've all too many names. It's all, I know. I know. It all, I know. Right. Um. So ghost in my bedroom is the blog itself. Okay. And then as that developed, and I found out that my purpose was in fact, you know, to help others who have gone through similar things as myself. Um. I had always used the hashtag free your ghost on everything. Um, I took that hashtag and developed it into my own company now, which is Free Your Ghost and is where I offer the re- addiction recovery coaching. Um, I, I received my certification uh, as a peer support specialist. Um, it's very it's an emerging field in the social services arena. Uh, they're specific people. They're very similar to therapists. Um we have to have certification, but you must self-identify with a mental illness or prior addiction. And it makes it very unique for me because it helps me relate to the people I'm working with. Um, it's a whole other level of empathy. And I mean, I think I'm pretty good at it. I don't know. <laughs> well, here's one thing I'd say. You've definitely yeah. got a good resume for it. I mean, <laughs> yeah, right? I can't, you know, I mean, um, you were you, you were you weren't selling your qualification, but you were telling listeners about your qualification. I was like, oh, never mind that bollocks to that. Yeah. Look at the experience you've got. Really, you've got the lifestyle. I don't want a piece of paper. I want someone that's been there, done it, got a t-shirt. Absolutely. It's almost like, you know, my degree was something that I finished, you know, just recently, which was amazing. I you finished my bachelor's degree and finally graduated after working on it for 13 years. And then yeah, congratulations. You know, Thank you. And, you know, it's funny, it was such a personal achievement. But when it comes to this stuff, when it comes to everything that I've gone through and helping others now moving forward, my life experience means means way more. I mean, the degree is nice to have and show a piece, piece of paper, but um, my life experience is, is what helped me and, and continues to help me um, building me into the person that I am and moving forward. Yeah. So I've just got a couple of questions as we wrap up then. So we can we're going to come quick fire, but but take your time and answer them. So we've covered a lot of ground from yeah. when you're 12 years old and having the wobble to 16, you know, battling um, sort of anorexia, being bulimic, uh, you know, mental illness, um, suicide. There's a lot here actually now, isn't it? <laughs> Seriously, yeah, listen, yeah, yeah. I know my story. You can have a lie down. Oh, um, yeah. Anyway, so I guess you throw that stuff together. Um, if there's, you know, getting back to sort of being serious now, but if there's a, a parent listening to some of this and they might have seen a, a red flag, a small behaviour, something that you said might have resonated, thinking that could be my son or daughter, what, what's the best advice throughout your life experience that you could give to a parent now that might be in and around six, uh, situations that you've experienced? It's really funny that you asked me this because I'm actually developing a course for this right now and it's uh, being being released soon. Um, It's called Empathy Made Easy. Um, One of the challenges I think we face as a parent and I I know my parents have faced is the ability to relate to a child because we have so many responsibilities happening in our life, you know, and when our kid comes to us with something going on in their life, it can seem very small. Because we're comparing it, you know, um, with all of our stuff up here and, and our child's down here. So, you know, for an example, when when a child comes to us as an adult and say someone called them a name at school and they're very upset, their whole life is crumbling down. 
And they're telling you that. Uh, from me, my, my advice to you in that situation, the worst thing you could do is laugh. I'm telling you right that right now. It can be difficult to, it's hard for me not to laugh at my three-year-old. Um, but you know, you have to figure that's where they are in their life. They don't have all of these other responsibilities that we have. So this is their life right there. And it is, it is soul crushing. So say the kid comes home and, uh, uh, you know, they're a wreck They're you know, just life is over kind of deal because this kid called him a name at school. Um, the best thing you can do is sit them down, acknowledge how they feel and relate to them. And this is an opportunity for the parent to be vulnerable too. Um, so, you know, just for example, if I was to do it, I'd sit down and say, I'm, you know, I'm really sorry this happened to you. Um, I would try to pinpoint some of the emotions that child's probably feeling and, uh, or relate to them of a time where it's happened to me. Cause Lord knows I've been called lots of names in my lifetime. Um, but I would sit them down and say, you know, I remember someone calling me a name in school too. And I remember how that made me feel. And, you know, I just want you to know I'm here for you. What, what can I do to support you right now? Um, the invalidation, the whole stay positive and you'll get over it and you're being too emotional. Um, that's causing damage and that will eventually turn your kid off from wanting to come from you. And the whole idea and what we need to do is make them feel safe to come to us. So empathy is extremely important. And that's something that I talk to parents often about. Um, you know, you got to meet your kid where they are. You have to. Um, you got to make them feel safe so that they can come to you. And when they do have bigger issues, that way you can handle it appropriately. And they know, they know they can talk to you. So, so that's what I, that's what I always say. Try to not to relate to their situation specifically. I always encourage parents to pinpoint some of their, pinpoint some of those emotions. You know, does your kid seem mad, frustrated, lonely, angry? You've felt that in your lifetime. Get on their level. Relate to a time where you felt lonely, angry, frustrated. Talk to them about it. Suggest how, how or explain how you got over it. And then, you know, ask them, encourage them, point out their strengths and leave them in this wonderful, empowered place. Because the best thing we can do is build our kids up and their confidence and their love for themselves so that they can move forward in life and, and be able to tackle things on their own. Well, and that's great advice. I was sat there listening, thinking I should be doing all that with my kids, but how bad am I? But I, I will, I, I will commit. I will commit to to trying. My my wife is the, she's the stronghold in that area, but I will definitely. I listen to advice, sound advice. I will commit to to trying for sure. So let's flip the question, and this is a hypothetical one, but. What is the type of advice that might have got you to a place of sanctuary sooner? You know, so you've had this battle for your entire life. What advice could someone have given you to have got you here sooner? I don't know, because I was given it so many times. I was I was told, you know, I think you have a problem. You, you need to stop drinking. You're drinking too much. I don't, I don't know what could have helped. I really don't know. I think that what's happening now, though, in the world, the recovery presence, the more people coming out, being proud of their sobriety. I think that's probably something that I wish I would have seen back then. But they're really, 
is nothing that I would change about any of it, to be quite honest. Um, because, you know, again, it's gotten to me where I was, you know, where I am now and has helped me to relate to others in their situation. So my perspective is, you know, I can only use what I've gone through to be more vocal about it and show that other people do not have to be ashamed of what they're feeling or what they're going through and to know that they have a place that they can safely talk about it with me. Um, and it's working. I add humor into my efforts, which I think makes it 10 times better. Um, but you know, that's the other part of it. I think everything, you know, the mental health awareness sometimes is just too serious. I firmly believe that. I think when you do add humor into it and it makes it more relatable. Um, but I have a lot of people reaching out to me now, so I can only try to do my best and keep doing what I'm doing and make it bigger. And I'm, that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm writing my book and I'm just gonna just keep pushing for bigger. And again, that's, that's great advice that you've given and it is that inward reflection and just keeping keep walking forward so i'm proud as to where you are so i guess the last question let's end on a, a real high then um as you've heard today age 33 what, what is your greatest life accomplishment my greatest life accomplishment um I thought this would be an easy one, Ashley. I thought, yeah, let's end on a high. This is a good... I know, it's you really gotta, you gotta easy You know, I know. I, I, that's, that's why it's so challenging. Um, I have a lot of things that I'm very, very thankful for. My, you know, my... I feel like a lot of people probably expect me to say my daughter here in this situation. Um, she is, you know, my my most favorite accomplishment. Um, but I think my my biggest accomplishment was my decision to choose me and I make that decision every day. And so that's, I look at every day as an accomplishment, truthfully. Yeah. And Ashley, it's been a real honor and a privilege to <laughs> talk to you today and to get to know you better and, you know, through some very deep subjects, there's been some laughter as well. So I'm, I'm just so grateful. And I know that, um, you know, we're touching some very common subjects. Like we started off in our conversation. It's my belief, a lot of these ones that people want to push aside and either say it doesn't exist or they just choose not to have it in their life. You know, but mental illness and everything you've gone through is very real with your addiction. So uh, thank you very much for, for joining me today. But before we wrap up, just go through some of your websites and areas that people can get hold of you again. Sure. Yeah. Everything can be found on freeyourghost.com has all of my social links on there and a link to the blog too, that, that you can continue and follow along my story. Brilliant. So Ashley Kesner, thank you for joining me today. Yes. Thank you so much, Simon. This is great. Thank you for joining the who I became podcast. To help spread this inspiring story, be sure to share it with your friends, hit the like button, and of course, subscribe to our channel so you won't miss out on any future episodes. We'd also love to hear how this story impacted you, so leave a comment on whatever platform you're watching us from. To learn more about this episode, our guests, or Simon, head over to the Simon Osimo slash podcast and sign up to receive the latest information delivered straight to your inbox. Once again, thank you for joining us for the Who I Became podcast.